By now, I'm sure you've heard about the Progressive Bitcoiners' partnership with SunExchange, the solar cell leasing platform that is bringing solar power to businesses and communities in South Africa. It turns out signing up is incredibly easy, and having recently done so, I was excited to see that I could help fund their new project, which is providing solar energy to Group Constantia, South Africa's oldest winery. Why would a winery do this? Well, it's simple, to maintain their commitment to conservation while meeting the unique energy demands of a vineyard. With Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin and make a positive impact on the planet. With their new partnership, I'm hoping maybe we can earn bottles of wine back instead. But in the meantime, I'll take some sats. And lucky for you, progressive Bitcoiner listeners, get a free solar cell with their first purchase at thesunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner. You know, Jeff Booth talks about kind of just building this other system on the side while, you know, the, the old system sort of exists and people kind of just bridge over gradually. Uh, but I do think I'm certainly hopeful that it's possible that we can reach more people and explain this sort of thing to them. Um, but I do think it's exceedingly important that that we do so in ways that are kind and inviting and uh, empathetic and um you know, just all kind of boils down, boils down to just you know, don't be a don't be a dick about it, um, and just you know, paint something for people to describe the world that we as Bitcoiners want to build and want to live in and want to create, and sort of show people why that would be a better world to live in than the one we currently do, so, such that it incentivizes them and, and encourages them and gives them something to hope for. Because I think Bitcoin is ultimately, like I said earlier, I think it's about hope and optimism for being able to course correct some of the paths that we're on. So you got to you lead with that, I think. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Logan Bollinger. Logan is an attorney by day and prolific tweet thread creator by night. He's been a fresh and insightful addition to Bitcoin commentary, sharing his perspectives as a former Bernie Sanders supporter turned Bitcoiner. He is the creator of Think Bitcoin, a newsletter providing Logan's thoughtful analysis of the space, as well as additional curated Bitcoin content. Please enjoy this episode with Logan Bollinger. Well, Logan Bollinger, welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm grateful to have you here. Thanks, Mark. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, big fan of your show. I think you're doing a great service to the space. So excited for our conversation. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Uh, before we get into your bio, you're a new dad. Is that right? I am. That is right. Yeah, I have uh, my wife and I, we have a four month old. She's just over four months old. So it's within the realm of possibility that you might hear some uh, her chiming in a little bit in the background. But uh, she's she's a Bitcoiner, I can assure you. So Absolutely. And uh, how is sleeping going? Uh, there's a lot to be desired on that front. Um, you know, we are, we're muscling through it. I'll say that. It's getting better though. It's, it's improving. She's, she's, she's doing well. I'm dealing with my own stress right now. My, my four and a half year old, um, we were out hiking up north and she face planted into a rock. And so she's got a gash on her forehead that required stitches. And oh no, when you, when you face your child's first big medical trauma where you're holding, mm -hmm. her, holding her down to get stitches. Um, that's traumatic and very oh, I traumatic. Can, I, and, I can imagine. Yeah. But speaking with older seasoned parents recognize it's just the beginning. <laughs> so this too shall pass. Right, right. But you wrote a letter to your daughter about Bitcoin. Why did you do that? 
Uh, that's a good question. Um, I did that because the way that I view Bitcoin, I think, I think we're on the cusp of kind of a big paradigm shift, just kind of globally, economically, um, socially, culturally. I think that is something that intuitively most people, I think, sense and feel that we're kind of coming to maybe the end of something. It's kind of hard to put your finger on what that is. And I think Bitcoin is going to play um, an important role in in whatever sort of emergent reality comes out on the other side. And what I'm hopeful for is that it's, it's a better world because of Bitcoin on the other side of this sort of transitional phase that I think we're in. And, you know, I wanted to just sort of talk about that to my daughter and sort of give her my thoughts. And so she knows that this is something that, that I'm working towards, that I think everybody who is working in Bitcoin is ultimately at root an optimistic, hopeful person, despite some of the, sometimes I think we get mischaracterized as sort of doom and gloom folks who are wishing for the collapse of everything so that we can, you know, have some kind of citadel on the other side where we keep everybody out. And, and I, I don't like that at all. Um, and I, I kind of think that at heart, a lot of us in the Bitcoin space are, are actually just optimistic, hopeful folks who want to build a better future for posterity, for our kids, for our grandkids. Um, and so I wanted my daughter to know that that's why I'm doing all of this. And that's what Bitcoin is about to me is so that we can have a better world for, for your kids, for my kids. Um, and I also think that Bitcoin has there's kind of an honesty about the way that it works you know structurally you know proof of work you know you can't really fake that it's, it's the opposite of kind of the fiat system where there's a lot of manipulation a lot of shenanigans the whole like get something for nothing type of uh dynamic in in the existing system and so i think we can learn things from bitcoin and apply it to life valuable lessons and so i was trying to get some of that across to her as well and hopefully uh she reads it someday um and hopefully what you know as we as you know the years progress we're moving more towards a, a world where bitcoin is is helping more people and, and creating a better environment for her and for everybody and uh that would make me very happy may i read a segment from it sure be a part of this hope cultivate it advance it work to keep it alive when you stumble upon an idea like bitcoin that can truly transform the world and move it forward. Fight relentlessly on its behalf, because an idea with such power will be staunchly resisted by those who benefit most from the status quo, however unsustainable and destructive that status quo may be. As Oscar Wilde said, an idea that is not dangerous is unworthy of being called an idea at all. Clearly, you have a great deal of conviction, and I think it's the point in which we can try to better understand where that conviction came from. What is your Bitcoin story, Logan? The first time that um, I encountered Bitcoin was in 2017. Um, I was in law school at the time, and I just very happenstance. Um, I, I listened to a, I think it was a Tim Ferriss podcast with Nick Zabo, and it's about cryptocurrency. I had absolutely no idea what it was. Um, it was it was quite a lengthy podcast, and uh, it was riveting to me. And I found myself wanting to learn more. It was a totally foreign area. Um, and so I started to, I got a book by, the only Bitcoin book that was available at the time, at least that I could find, was a book by Nathaniel Popper. I think it was called Digital Gold. I don't think Safedine's book was out. I don't think Jan Pritzker's Inventing Bitcoin was out or, or Nick Batia or anything like that. 
so I, I read I read most of that book, but you know, as I as I think you you know from your, your educational background um, in medicine, you know, law school is gets busy, things get hectic, things get you know get kind of lost in the shuffle, and so I I I didn't go fully down the rabbit hole in 2017. I I got some Bitcoin and um, I started to engage a little bit, but it just it didn't stick with me at that time. It didn't I didn't sort of get all of the story of Bitcoin. Um, and I just got kind of distracted. I was just trying to get, get done with law school and, and get a job. And so I was in it from 2017, kind of into 2018. I got out um, near the top, actually. I kind of sort of thought I was a genius um, at the time, which, you know, turned out to be the opposite. Um, but, but so, you know, you, as I, I see all the time, you know, people saying, you know, Bitcoin will humble you. I think that that's true. Uh, and I was certainly humbled um, and so I kind of followed the space a little bit from a, a short distance, uh, for the next year and a half or so. Um, I actually took a securities regulation class in my third year of law school. And we talked about, uh, you know, we, we went deep into the Howey test. We talked about Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and, uh, and it's pretty interesting from that perspective. And then, so it's, it's interesting having kind of that grounding now as these conversations persist and continue to go on. And, uh, but it wasn't really until March, April, May of 2020, when it, it kind of hit me again, the Bitcoin, uh, when I started, started to get back into it. And that was just because, you know, I've been somebody who's, you know, relative, pretty engaged in sort of personal finance and being smart with your money. And that's sort of more traditional, I don't want to say full-blown like fire space, the financial independence, retire early stuff, but just kind of adjacent to that world of just trying to be smart and sort of thinking, Oh, the stock market is markets go up. And, but it was in March, April, May of 2020, when there were so many unknowns because of COVID and we, you know, there were different shutdowns and lockdowns and the restaurants were mostly closed and we were all doing takeout and everything was really weird. And we just didn't really know what, uh, what the world was going to look like in, in eight months. And, but nevertheless, markets just started going parabolic. And, you know, that was, even as somebody who had been pretty conditioned to believe that markets always go up no matter what. And obviously I'm not an idiot. I know that the stock market is not the economy and it's forward looking and all that, that stuff, but it was still, it didn't pass the smell test to me, I guess. Um, and you know, I was a non-expert obviously, but it just, it didn't, seem like the, like it, that we should be having a parabolic move in the stock market in April, May of 2020 when we didn't, you know, we didn't have vaccines. We didn't have any idea of like what, you know, different variants would look like or, and so I started to dig a little deeper and that's kind of when um, I started to get into monetary policy and I started to, I was getting back into Bitcoin at that time because the people who were talking about monetary policy the most at that time were, Bitcoin folks. And I sort of found some of them online and, you know, I had a long commute to work. I still have a pretty long commute to work. So I listened to a lot of podcasts like, like yours, Mark and, uh, and others. And I remember listening to Jeff Booth's 10 part series on Robert Breedlove's podcast. And, and I read Jeff's book and, you know, you just had Jeff on recently and that was a great episode. And, and he was very influential to me, especially in the beginning kind of helped me make sense of, of what was happening and the different forces at play. And, you know, from there, I just, I just dove all the way down um, into the rabbit hole. And I 
it's been the most intellectually exhilarating journey I've ever been on. And I'm, I'm saying this as somebody who genuinely loves being in school and loves, you know, reading and, and learning stuff. And so, but notwithstanding sort of all the other intellectual adventures, I, I feel like I've been on, uh, Bitcoin continues to reveal new things and be fascinating uh, to me. And I've just, I started writing about it and uh, just getting more involved and, and meeting people in the space and kind of just becoming part of the community. And I think trying to advance this technology forward and help more people kind of come on board and learn about it and learn the ways in which it can, you know, create a better world. And, uh, and here we are. And, and now I write a newsletter and I'm on the show and, and trying to do it as much as I can. Another thing that you wrote to your daughter was Bitcoin does not belong to an ideology or political party. Neither should your mind. Was there a point when on your journey here where you pushed back um, within your own mind about what you were learning or were you kind of open to these new ideas from the beginning? You studied in the belly of the beast in the University of Chicago. You had to have had some <laughs> tangential indoctrination at some point. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's such a good question. Um, I think one of the most compelling and kind of beautiful things about Bitcoin is the way that it sort of forces you to reflect upon a lot of your assumptions and sort of stress test them and really ruthlessly examine them. I think um, as somebody who's spent a lot of time studying in kind of a liberal arts environment, you know, the whole Socratic, the unexamined life isn't worth living sort of thing. You, everybody hears that and everybody thinks that they're living an unexamined life. And then we, we all walk around and think that, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a curious, inquisitive, you know, person who's objectively examining right, right, things. And, right. But you're really not. And, um, and I think Bitcoin really just forces you to reflect on that. It forced me to reflect on that. There was no, there was no really one instance for me that, that I, that there wasn't really one aha moment. It was cumulative. Um, I, I just, I went from being a pretty staunch uh, Bernie Sanders supporter, honestly, um, to kind of starting to question whether the solutions being proposed by folks like Bernie, whether they were actually addressing what I was coming to to see as the as the actual problem that was causing all of the symptoms that I, I was hoping for somebody like like Bernie to address. And um, as cliche and and totally hackneyed um, and almost tired at this point as the the matrix sort of memes are, there's certainly some truth to that where you're kind of just gradually waking up and saying, oh, well, maybe maybe a lot of the things that I thought about that, that were wrong were maybe I was sort of jumping on that bandwagon because I was concerned more with my political tribe and what they thought. And that was maybe a shortcut to thinking in some ways. It was, it was me kind of cutting the corners and just saying, who's the group of people that I feel like I identify the most with and what do they think? And what do they think the problem is? And okay, that's then let's let's go that route. And I think Bitcoin is appealing to uh, people. Kind of want to punch it into different ideologies, but it's sort of ultimately it kind of resists that. It, there are valuable things about Bitcoin for people of of a diversity of, of ideologies. So I, I I find that kind of endlessly interesting. But but yeah, to answer your question, there was no no kind of specific point where I just kind of said, okay, well now it's all different. It was just cumulative and it's just um and i just feel like i was just almost like opening up layer by layer and i felt like i was unlearning things that 
um, that I didn't really realize that I had been sort of inculcated with over the years. And, you know, you sort of do almost like an autopsy of your own influences and you kind of examine all those. And, and I try to still be as critical as possible of even sort of Bitcoin influences that, that kind of come into my life. But, um, but I, I, one of the, like, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, the letter to my daughter about the different values that I think Bitcoin uh, stands for, or at least, you know, encourages the people. And I do think open-mindedness and curiosity and sort of self-reflection um, are some of those things. And, and I think I've become more of, you know, more self-reflective and, and more critical um, because of Bitcoin, because of going on the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I want to read uh, one more thing that you've written, and this was from a piece that you wrote for Bitcoin Magazine entitled From Bernie to Bitcoin. You state, individuals and political parties can be compromised. Commitment can waver or halt. Ideas can ossify, devolve, or fail to appropriately meet changing facts. Errors can and will be made. Special interests can prove more insidious and insurmountable than originally anticipated or promised. And more bleakly, power can, and often does, corrupt. Candidates can and do lie which is all to say individuals are single points of failure. Trusting that none of the aforementioned phenomena will occur is, as I've inevitably learned, naive. So what you're describing here, in my opinion, is, is simply human fallibility. You have a master's in English literature from the University of Chicago. What, if any, lessons have you taken from your myriad stories, books that you've read over the years that can be applied to this predicament of human fallibility that we seem to be faced with in our political system? Fantastic question. Uh, this is a super interesting question. I think perhaps it might be more accurate to say that I didn't fully learn some of the lessons um, that I should have learned from a lot of the stories that I read and the, and the work that I spent a lot of time studying. And you know, now, you know, when you posed that question to me, uh, the first thing that came to, to my mind was, um, there's a Shakespeare quote, and I forget the play that it's, that it's in. Um, I mean, I can, we can look it up later, but it's that uh, the strongest oaths are but straw to the fire in the blood, um, which is to say, basically, that man, you know, men, women, humans, we, uh, you know, we may have these lofty commitments that we make, or we may sort of have these lofty ideals that we purport to, to live by and abide by. Um, and those are the, the sort of proverbial strongest oaths in the quote, but, but they're, they're nothing but straw to the fire in the blood, which is sort of the inherently human, you know, the emotion part and the sort of the different motivations that you can be infused by and moved by that that you don't always know where they come from and sort of they're not always morally aligned with, with who you think you are. Um, you know, people tend to be more, I mean, especially politicians, very short-term minded, short-term motivated. Um, I would say dubiously incentivized in other ways as well. And there's also the other, the other quote I was thinking about was, you know, and one of the things I studied as well was, was film and, uh, and, you know, my wife, it sort of makes fun of me because I'm always talking about these old, old foreign films. And she's like, you know, you're the only person who cares about this. But, um, but anyways, there's this, uh, this, this famous French film uh, called the rules of the game. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it in French, but it's a Jean Renoir movie. I think it's from the thirties, but at the end of, at the end of it, after sort of all the, everybody's lives kind of unravel and all the sort of lies and secrets and everything just, just comes apart. And Jean Renoir's character he was acting in the film as well. 
um, he has this line where he says, you know, this, I think it's sort of in this world, you know, the awful thing is that everyone has their reasons and just kind of leaves it at that. And that's, I, I, that is the awful thing about the world is that everybody has their reasons. And I think sometimes, and that, and that was kind of the other, some of the things I was talking about in that article about trying to limit this, the surface area on which human error and shenanigans and kind of those types of motivations can become overly influential. Um, that was just all kind of getting back to, it's, it's really difficult to entrust humans or to kind of force human, trust humans to live in this and, and conduct policy in this perfectly moral way that you want them to, because they're, they're going to mess it up. That is, you know, thousands and thousands of years of, of human history and human nature and the stories that we tell about it, um, I think are, is, is, is pretty compelling evidence that, that that's going to happen. So, so yeah, that's, that was kind of my thinking there. And I probably didn't, I, I you know, I, I use that Shakespeare quote all the time, but I, I, I think it's one of those things sometimes you say, but you don't fully internalize it as much until you kind of, kind of see it. Until you live it. Yes, everybody has the reason to be able to rationalize away moral hazard. You know, if they've if they've made their million dollar donation to such and such a philanthropy, then the results of their moral hazard somehow can be uh, explained away. Mm -hmm. So you you wrote um, Bernie to Bitcoin, a uh, two part article, and the articles you know describe this journey that you go on from being a Bernie supporter, what he stands for, and really the integrity that you see in this individual as a politician, knowing that he uh, is unique in that sense. But even with that realization, you come to sense that that is not enough. The, the individual with that integrity, whether that's Bernie or Obama or an AOC, is not enough when you're in this system that uh, incentivizes bad behaviors. So you've described Bitcoin as a separate system. I first want to ask you, do you think there is a way that we can talk to other individuals about that very situation, about talking that the solution may not be in a new elected official, may not be uh, a new law or regulation, rather we need a new system entirely? It's it's a concept that is so foreign because I think our generation has not lived through a system change, and so that idea is is really hard to grasp. Do you think is there's a way of, of bridging that gap? I'm certainly hopeful that there is a way to to bridge that gap. I think I, I think you're correct. I, I don't. You, it's certainly correct that nobody in in our general age cohort has has gone through a major monetary system. Uh, paradigm shift. I think what's important. I, I think it's important for if we're going to bridge that gap and and sort of break this down to more people and and educate more folks and and explain why Bitcoin um, is potentially a third way that that most folks haven't thought about. I think the way that we communicate is important, and obviously the way that Bitcoiners communicate has has become kind of a hot topic of late. And you know, I I do think it's worth you know, discussing that because I think, you know, you're not going to bring people on board by painting this. You don't want to sort of paint this kind of dystopian hellscape that is imminent, you know, in a year or two. 
if we all don't sort of sell all our possessions and buy Bitcoin tomorrow. Um, that I don't like the idea of, I mean, I think it's important to talk about the, the flaws of the current system and the consequences that, that potentially lie ahead if we, if we persist in this path. But I, I think it's a more productive approach to rather than describe the, the calamity that we want people to run from, if we describe uh, or do more work in, in painting a picture of what we might run toward, uh, which I think is a more powerful narrative. It's a, it's a pretty basic, simple, and you know, uh, I'm sure I'm not the, I'm definitely not the first person who's suggested that we start framing it in that way. Um, I think that's certainly more compelling for folks to say, hey, do you kind of feel like you're on a endless treadmill right now trying to hold things together and stay above water and you can't stop on the treadmill or else really bad things happen and, and sort of start from, from that point just human to human. Well, well how do you feel in this current environment? Like, let me, you know, you, you might reflexively think that Bitcoin is this crazy magical internet money thing, but have you reflected about your current situation? I mean, how do you feel? And then kind of meeting people there and, and sort of guiding them down this path. Well, maybe here's here, this might be why some of this stuff is happening. And, um, you know, there's this other sort of thing that we're trying to build on concurrently. Um, you know, Jeff Booth talks about kind of just building this other system on the side while, you know, the, the old system sort of exists and people kind of just bridge over gradually. Uh, but I do think I'm certainly hopeful that it's possible that we can reach more people and explain this sort of thing to them. Um, but I do think it's exceedingly important that, that we do so in ways that are kind and inviting and uh, empathetic and, um, you know, just all kind of boils down, boils down to just you know, don't be a, don't be a dick about it. Um, and just you know, paint something for people to describe the world that we as Bitcoiners want to build and want to live in and want to create and sort of show people why that would be a better world to live in than the one we currently do so, such that it incentivizes them and, and encourages them and gives them something to hope for. Cause I think Bitcoin is ultimately like I said earlier, I think it's about hope and optimism for being able to course correct some of the, the paths that we're on. So you got to you got to lead with that. I think you've described it as a political system invites us to place more and more trust in individuals to solve more and more problems in an environment more and more hostile to problem solving of any kind. This trust that you describe, you compare the trust of the current system to the trust needed in Bitcoin and perhaps offloading some of that to the network. Can you tell us a little bit more how you compare, contrast those, those two systems as it relates to trust? Yeah, so I think a good example of, of the problems with the current system is just take a look at you know, every month, the way we sort of anticipate with bated breath uh, every word that comes out of Jerome Powell's mouth. Um, you know, the Fed governors, I, I mean, it's just a word by word sort of weird it's it's just really bizarre ritual at this point that we're doing and the entire global economy hinges on what seven unelected people um sitting in a room and um i don't know if you ever read the book lords of easy money by i think it's by chris but and the rooms that they're they seem to be sitting in per that book you know they're not even really talking to each other that much and they're just alone looking at their models which sounds kind of depressing and sad, but, but that's, uh, and we, we await the, their sort of um, 
declarations about what the global economy is going to look like and or you know how much money is is, it, is there going to be and and what's the cost of that money going to be and the ripple effects of that ripple throughout the entire world down into sort of emerging markets and you know other uh, countries that are just not nearly as wealthy as we are and are sort of bearing the brunt and the consequences of this and i think it seems to me that we've just gotten so far away from any ability to be able to address actual system problems because both sides are now have just placed the blame on the other side um, politically, which of course invites. So when the division that you've created is basically not, you know, us versus problems that we need to solve, but, but us versus like the other political party, because if, if they get in power, then it's going to be hell on earth. So, um, so, but for us, then you're basically your pitch to voters becomes more of like, just trust us. Like you have to trust us because you can't trust them. Um, they will, they will kill us all. And so I think we, we've sort of almost created this, this situation where every sort of political pitch at this point is just, well, I'm not that person. So you can trust me to do this. And I think, I think Bitcoin offers a way to get a little bit, get some distance from that. I mean, I think like, uh, you know, Jeff Booth and others, you know, I think when you have misinformation at the monetary level, that's obviously gonna gonna trickle out. And there's not a whole lot of incentive for um, you know, individual politicians always to uh, make decisions that are, I think, in the best interests of of people other than kind of a small group of, of folks who exercise the most control. And, you know, so I think I'm not sure if I'm answering your question well, but I think Bitcoin gives us sort of this third way to look at problem solving that is less trust me, I will solve this problem and more sort of, oh, well, you actually can't solve this problem. But if we, you know, implement or adopt or use this other sort of monetary system, then I don't actually need to worry about trusting you to, to steward it or to maintain it or to make correct decisions about it. Um, because despite your entreaties to me about how you're going to do that, um, I don't actually, I'm, I'm not I don't want to bet my house on the fact that you're going to do that. And so why don't I just kind of obviate the necessity of trusting you by you know, sort of using something like Bitcoin. Describe for us the example that you use uh, in the comparison between how government treats money and how a big pharma treats health in inevitably getting similar results. Well, I think both of, in both of those situations, um, it's about treating symptoms as opposed to treating the root causes of problems. And it's sort of a, a painkiller philosophy, whereas instead of, um, and, you know, obviously, Mark, you can speak to this considerably more than I can um, as a physician, um, but, you know, it's this idea of instead of, I, I think that sort of in more Eastern medicine, it's more of, you know, let's move through the pain and not sort of, uh, you know, figure out the root cause of the pain so we can address that. So we don't constantly have recurrence um, or exacerbation of symptoms. But you know, I think in America, I mean, we're, um, there's a lot of pharmacological intervention in, in America. I think we tend to, and I'm just to, just to clarify, I am 100% a fan of medicine, um, you know, and using medicine, um, and when I need to take medicine, I do that. Uh, so, but I think it's worth, you know, taking a holistic look at, you know, if you're sick, it's or you're you're not feeling energized or you're feeling a little down or something like that. I think it's worth 
taking a look holistically at your life and trying to figure out environmentally and sort of at the sort of base layer of your existence, you know, what are all the inputs that are going in that are making you feel that way? And how do we address those at kind of the most fundamental level versus just giving you a pill or something and saying, well, just here you go. We'll see you in, in a month. And, uh, you know, you'll probably just keep, that doesn't really address the problem. You just Treating symptoms and treating more symptoms. Exactly. Some symptoms of the symptoms. Exactly. Yeah. And then you kind of, you know, potentially have a cascading effect or you have side effects and then it creates other symptoms and it's kind of can go on sort of infinitely. And I think the way that we've been conducting monetary policy in this country and, and elsewhere, certainly in Europe as well, is very much in kind of this painkiller way of, you know, well, let's just from a very sort of short-term perspective, let's, let's just like eliminate all discomfort at all times. Like there's no... We cannot allow there to be any any pain whatsoever. And let's just kind of put band-aids on everything. Sure, the the system itself may be crumbling and there may be existential issues with it, but we can let's let's not worry about that. Let's just kind of uh, you know wrap it up with an ace bandage and send somebody on their way. And I think, you know, if you, you do that enough, you just you're gonna, I mean, you're just gonna create increasingly um, intractable problems, more severe problems, more unsolvable problems. And, and I think eventually the cure, if you kind of let this go long enough, I mean, the cure itself is going to be painful uh, at, that, at that point. So I think it's just both of those, you know, uh, the monetary policy and the big pharma thing, it's, it's just about, uh, they're similar in the sense that it's very short-term minded and just treating symptoms and not root causes of, of problems. And it all becomes in, in what we call in medicine comorbid conditions. So if somebody's got multiple different uh, chronic diseases, such as heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, uh, chronic kidney disease, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, have been addressed with medications, uh, procedures, dialysis, et cetera, over time, mm. that yes, while have provided some relief for the person, have not under have not addressed root causes. Root causes being that that indi individual is probably living in an urban area with food deserts, did not have appropriate access to quality food, did not have appropriate access to medical care, did not have appropriate access to technologies that can provide healthier incentives, et cetera. And in turn, they're left with a system that kicks the can further down the road, having to see me every other month to put Band-Aids uh, on you so that you can come back to the hospital in a few more months with the exact same thing. But we've, we've prolonged your life. And that's what we, we look at. We don't look at the quality of life uh, nearly as much as we should as what the, what is the quality of our economy, you know? And I think that is perhaps a crux of the matter that the GDP does not get to equality. Uh, it's a very much a quantity measure. And clearly the quality of our lives seems to be uh, impaired when what we measure is not indicative uh, or translates into the quality of our lives. Precisely, yeah. And I think you... You know, as as a physician, I think you would probably you would probably say if you could, you know, if there was a way for you to effectively address some of those, you know, the the root causes of things that you were talking about, some of those really difficult things from a from a medical perspective, you would if you if that was something that you could easily sort of get to and fix, like things like food deserts and um, that sort of thing. That would be the. I am my friend. I'm, I started starting a new business, and we're launching soon to address uh, the, these very things: lifestyle factors, which are the majority of what defines uh, somebody's health. And so, um, in addition, it would be my dream someday to use um, 
Bitcoin miners to heat greenhouses so that I can uh, make food, have food produced here in the great northern tundra year round so that blueberries and etc. cetera uh, do not need to be shipped from South America all the way up to North America to have in the winter. And so we can have fresh produce that can be um, cultivated by people who need it the most and they've got free food, they've got employment and us hibernating up here in the, in the winter get some delicious produce uh, when we wouldn't otherwise been able to do so. So that's my dream. <laughs> I, I love that so much, Mark. And uh, it's like a beautiful example of why I love this space so much is, you know, people like yourself, ideas and ventures like that, that sort of you, you are addressing root problems, you're using Bitcoin, the whole, you know, the, the values and the things that we learn from Bitcoin, you take those and you can kind of apply those um, to other fields. And and it seems like Bitcoin is constantly, I mean, your, your episode with, um, with Margo uh, was good with this too, is Bitcoin just offers all of these unique ways to address problems that I just don't, it's almost like it's a, it's an unlock. It, it breaks log jams um, and just offers these totally out of the box, unique ways to address things that maybe we didn't have as easily accessible tools or methodologies to, to address them as, as effectively before or without Bitcoin. So that's, that's really cool, Mark. Congrats. And I hope we hear a lot more about that on subsequent shows. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I'm curious to get some technical uh, analysis from you, not TA, <laughs> from, <laughs> from an investment standpoint, but from an ex expertise standpoint. So you, you've had courses in um, securities law um, and obviously property and so forth. So I wanted to ask you those two points, uh, and you can nerd out on us for us, please. Give us a lowdown, securities. It's a hot topic right now. Uh, I haven't delved into the details of what's going on with Coinbase quite yet. But where do you come down on all these other thousands of tokens and whether or not they're unregistered securities? How should how should we see that as Bitcoiners? How should we see that as lay people? So it's a great question. Um, I'll preface by saying certainly not legal advice. Um, but uh, I think there, there are two different ways to look at it, I, I think. And hopefully this is helpful. I think there's the, you can look at it through the existing securities law regime, which is, you know, the Howey test that everybody talks about and the Securities Act and the Securities Exchange Act. And these are, these are from the thirties. Uh, these are sort of FDR stuff. And then what I think is being um, argued by the, the, the bill that was proposed by, you know, uh, Cynthia Lummis, Senator Lummis, uh, Senator Gillibrand, and which, I think is in line with what the folks who are working in, I guess we call it the, the web three universe, um, what, what they kind of want, which is basically just, I think they want to say, okay, we, we understand that there's this securities regime from the thirties um, that dates back, you know, basically a hundred years. Uh, but perhaps we should revisit that framework and ask, is that outdated? Is that helpful? Is that the whole purpose of these acts is to, protect investors, um, encourage adequate disclosures, and are we doing a disservice to investors if we lump everything uh, under this securities regime and, and, you know, sort of just do it all that way. And, you know, I think if you are, if you're looking at it from perspective one, which is Howley tests, old school SEC stuff, uh, I think it's, 
pretty hard to argue that, you know, I certainly don't want to get myself in trouble, but it's certainly hard to argue that anything other than Bitcoin um, is not a security. I, I think I've heard and read some arguments about Ethereum um, that aren't, that are certainly not, not compelling. Um, but I think, uh, I think Bitcoin is, is obviously not a security under, under Howie. And I think for 99.9% of other tokens, it's a really heavy lift to argue otherwise. I'm not saying it's impossible. And I'm sure that there are people who do, I don't do securities law anymore. Um, it's not my field anymore. So I'm sure there are securities lawyers currently working on this who, I mean, I know that there are, cause my wife is also uh, a lawyer and she does venture stuff and we have these discussions. And so, uh, so there are certainly arguments to be made for me personally, though, my personal opinion is I think Bitcoin is obviously not a security under the current uh, securities law framework. And uh, I think everything else is you've got to bring a strong argument. And uh, with respect to some of the, the new frameworks, I mean, I think the Lummis Gillibrand bill basically is, is trying to just kind of build, construct an entirely new way of looking at, at what is the security and asking that question. It's not constrained to, you know, this, this Howey test stuff from the thirties that it seems like they, they want to sort of look to the future and say, okay, does, does this old stuff still serve us? Is it still serving the purpose that it was supposed to serve uh, for investors in the thirties? And, you know, maybe that gets passed. Maybe it doesn't. I don't think, I mean, I don't think nothing's getting passed before midterms. I don't think, but uh, we'll see. It seems like I get into these arguments sometimes sometimes on Twitter with with folks about, you know, they'll be bemoaning the securities laws. And uh, you know, I just have to remind people, you know, the, the SEC, I mean, Congress can just write another securities law if they want to I mean, And then we just, that's that's all they have to do. They just, they write another law and then boom, we have another whole other framework. And that, that could happen. Uh, it seems like that probably will happen at some point. So, you know, I think we're dealing with the 1930s stuff now, but um, I expect we'll probably get a whole new framework that we can all fight about at some point. Don't know when that's going to be, but probably within the next few years. So we'll see. There'll be some sacrificial lambs, and yeah. others will others will have um, lobbying dollars to fit the bill. Yeah, and I will say I do think you know with the some of the Coinbase stuff that's going on now, um, I, I do think. I think all sides can agree. I think even Bitcoiners will agree that the SEC, it's, it's odd to me when I see Bitcoiners basically cheerleading Gary Gensler in some ways, who I don't necessarily think is, is, is a friend categorically necessarily to, um, to all of us. And I think some of the, I think Bitcoiners should still be able to recognize when the SEC is acting in ways that are seem a little underhanded, like these sort of you know, using these enforcement actions to try to sneak in sort of securities determinations. You know, you can sort of agree with their assessments on whether certain things are securities and still simultaneously disagree with the the way that they're approaching it. And and there's certainly an argument to be had that some of these things don't even fall within their uh, jurisdictional purview anyway, and that they shouldn't be, that this is a CFTC or a, yeah, CFTC thing. But so... I think some of the stuff they're trying to sneak into the Coinbase uh, action is 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 not optimal, and I think that's going to get fought pretty pretty hard. Um, it is seems like it's being fought pretty hard by the Coinbase folks uh, as we speak. So, just a couple more questions for you before we round out the hour. You mentioned that your wife is an attorney as well, and she works within the the venture capital world. 
What has been the uh, dinner conversations about the, you know, 2017 ICOs, the current uh, VC funding of a lot of these uh, token projects? How does she view that? What are her perspectives? Hmm. I want to be careful. She's uh, she's much much smarter than me on some of that stuff for sure, um, and she has a very ground level view uh, of what of what goes on. Our suffice to say, our dinner conversations are we talk about this stuff pretty much constantly. Um, I would say ad nauseum. It's candidly probably a good thing that our daughter is is only four months old and you know doesn't have to sort of listen to this and 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 comprehend it and be annoyed by it um, already. Uh, but yeah, it's it's something we discuss a lot. I think I mean, she's certainly. Um, my wife is definitely uh, a Bitcoiner. Um, at, at heart, she has a lot of uh, conviction in, in Bitcoin, and, and we're totally aligned on that. You know, and we both think that there are lots of exciting things going on um, that are going to reshape um, the future and and how we do things. You know, I I personally think that Bitcoin is the most exciting thing um, that is happening in the sort of that general space. I wouldn't say I don't. I, I wouldn't be comfortable saying that like no other thing other than Bitcoin ever will ever serve any use or be productive in any way, in any form, ever. Things that are currently in existence or may exist in the future, because um, I don't. I think that type of a categorical uh, thinking. I just don't. I mean, it's the same categorical thinking that no corners have about Bitcoin. Correct. Yes. And I, and it's just, it is never, it is, it never ends up being correct. So, uh, so I try to, I, and I, like I said, I think Bitcoin teaches you to be open-minded and curious. And so I think you've got to, um, you know, don't trust verify everything with your, with your, you know, research and sort of bring your perceptual and intellectual, uh, skills and, and, uh, equipment to bear on these things and, and, and make your own decisions. But yeah, we, I certainly don't want to put words in her mouth. So I'll just say we, we, we talk a lot about these things and, uh, and she, she loves Bitcoin. She's been a huge, huge support to, uh, to me and my Bitcoin journey. And, you know, I certainly would not be writing the newsletter and doing all this stuff uh, without the support of my wife. Um, so. Well, thank you for your dip- diplomatic response, counsel. Thank you. I, I want to get your opinion, actually. I'm going to sneak in one more question here. To me, I, I, I cannot get my head around, we'll use ETH, ETH, Ethereum as an example, the the token itself, the fact that it, it goes up in price as it relates to the protocol itself, and listeners will have uh, heard me refer to this as the Rettler dilemma, that if it's going to be used in a, uh, a platform such as Ethereum, if you're going to use that token in that platform, I would argue that that it should be cheap and in the sense like an ATM fee should be cheap in order to use the the platform that is Ethereum, but it's going up in value because it's being treated almost like a security. Would new security laws somehow settle that? Where all of a sudden, the the the, the way that you utilize Ethereum, the the platform, is different than uh, ETH, the security. In, in effect, it becomes almost like a stock. Mm. Am I am I over my skis here? No, that's a super interesting question. Um... I'm not sure. I don't. I, I certainly don't think that the. Uh, I don't want to be unfair to Senators Lummis and Gillibrand, but 
I don't think that there is anything in in their bill, and, and I haven't sort of line by line combed through it, but I don't think that that problem is is going to be, or that that, that the Rettler dilemma is going to be resolved legislatively um, by anything that's being proposed or discussed currently. So yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure on that front. I would be, if, yeah, I, w- I would not bet that that is going to get solved uh, by by legislation written by people in Congress who are still very much, honestly, they're probably not thinking about it quite as deeply, Mark, as you just articulated that and formulated that. Uh, I think these are, we should be cognizant of the fact that um, that these, these uh, men and women in Congress are very much uh, playing catch up on, and I, I think there's some, some admirable outreach being done and educational efforts at Bitcoin Policy Institute, shout out to them. It's being done, but I, I don't think that they're fully, uh, you know, in that deep, maybe. Yes, I could be wrong, uh, but perhaps they are. Maybe some of their staffers are, but, uh, but I don't know. All right, Logan, you know my last question. What gives you hope? Oh, yes, I love this question. Um, so I have a lot of hope um, in Bitcoin, uh, candidly, from, from because there are folks like you out here spending their time. There are a lot of folks like, like us spending their time doing basically side jobs, trying to educate others. And, um, and I'm, I'm really heartened by the fact that in addition to folks like you and the audience that you're intending to address, that there are, you know, also other podcasts addressing different audiences. And we are all kind of, we can kind of agree on, at least at the base level, that Bitcoin is a good thing. And it gives me hope to see that, uh, that there is something that, that people with differing political inclinations and ideologies can kind of uh, at least agree on to a certain extent. Um, I think we live in an age where there's nobody agrees on, on anything. And uh, so I think knowing that, uh, that Bitcoin is able to, to, to bring folks together you know, gives me, frankly, gives me hope that that humans are still capable of cooperating, and you know, potentially putting certain other differences aside, and to work towards uh, the greater good, which would be the advancements of of Bitcoin. Uh, so that gives me a lot of hope, and uh, I just get really uh, inspired seeing, you know, every day I see more really smart, really driven, uh, really thoughtful people doing work in the space. You know, writing in the space, making podcasts. And everybody seems to have this goal of making more people aware of, of Bitcoin and and trying to build this this future that'll be better than um, than the, the the reality that we're currently living in. And so I think that's that gives me hope, inspiration, makes me happy, you know, makes me excited and fired up to to do my small uh, parts in this whole thing and 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 write write the things that I write. Uh, as I'm, I'm sure you feel sometimes. You know, it, you don't always want to make the podcast or write the newsletter or, you know, it's been a busy day at work. And, but, you know, then I think of everybody else uh, who's, who's doing it. And I think of the ultimate goal. And, and I think now this is, you know, you gotta, this is, this is like I wrote, I think, in the letter to my daughter. I mean, when you, you get a chance to work for something like this, uh, you got you, you to gotta really give it every, it's worth it. Give it everything that you, that you have to advance it because you're not going to regret the time you spent doing it. And your writing is a testament uh, to that. And so I lied. I want to read one more uh, segment here from uh, one of your pieces. 
I was a Bernie supporter because I wanted to address a litany of societal problems. I am now a Bitcoiner because I know that DECA billionaires, dominant corporations, quote, late stage capitalism and Mark Zuckerberg, though certainly objectionable, are not the causes of these problems. They are symptoms of a broken money. Logan, your writing is exceptional. Your insight is as well. Please tell the listeners where they can find uh, more of it uh, through your uh, newsletter. Sure. Yeah, I write a uh, a free biweekly newsletter. It's called Think Bitcoin. Um, it's through Substack, so I believe the uh, you can find it at thinkbitcoin.substack.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at uh, the Y of Phi. That's the Y of F I. And uh, yeah, check out the newsletter, um, Mark. I've, I really appreciate this conversation. Like I said, I, I this is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, and so I, I think you're doing an amazing job and I look forward to hearing more about your, uh, some of your future endeavors that you're, that you're working on as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Logan. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Hey, don't forget to visit sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner to buy solar cells that will power the projects that inspire you. You'll earn monthly Bitcoin payments for 20 years from the clean energy your solar cells generate and the organizations you power gain access to affordable, reliable, clean energy. With Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin and make a positive impact on the planet. Progressive Bitcoiner listeners get a free solar cell with their first purchase. So get started at sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Progressive Bitcoiner. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. And don't forget, we have a website, theprogressivebitcoiner.com, where we have a lot of great content on Bitcoin and progressive issues. Thanks again for tuning in. 